looking at 2 Corinthians 6. We've been in 2 Corinthians 6 for the last two weeks, but every once in a while in this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter preaching through books of the Bible that we do, every once in a while we seem to strike a chord. We seem to hit something that the people out there on the internet all go, yeah, you know, that really helped me. And I sort of think that once I have said something, that that pretty much says it. I've said it, it's on tape, it's on the internet, it's on the website, so people should know that by now. And that's kind of how I felt about the indicative imperative. And then I brought it up again last week. And we put it into the context of the call to holiness. And it struck a chord. And I got such nice email this week. And lots of it. And the comments on Facebook and the people who are dropping notes to us are are just all across the board positive about what we said last week. Most of them have said you finally put everything in the proper place, the proper context. I now understand that it's grace. It's all grace. It's God's grace. And the call to holiness is part of the gospel of God's grace as opposed to the call to holiness being some kind of legalistic standard that people have to live up to in order to achieve God's grace. And so having that kind of response from folks is just really reassuring. And I just want to thank everybody that took the time to write a note and to uh, encourage us in this enterprise. We're picking right up at chapter 7, starting at verse 1, which is where we left off last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now immediately Paul is going to say, therefore having these promises. Let's go back and talk for just a moment about what the promises are. Back in chapter 6, starting at verse 17, Paul has made declarative statements, theological statements, doctrinal statements about how it is that human beings get saved. And this is the heart of the whole matter. How do people get saved? Every religion on the planet gets the indicative imperative backwards and says, you get saved by doing stuff. You get saved by doing enough 
genuflecting, going to churches enough times, washing yourself enough times, uh, repenting enough times, exercising enough faith that you have revved up in yourself. All of that is the standard legalistic approach, not just to Christianity, but to every man-made religion on the planet. Do the stuff to get the thing. If you want your 70 virgins, go blow yourself up. If you want to break the cyclic wheel of karmic life, if you want to get to nirvana, you've got to meditate your way out of the karma. So all religion, all man-made religion on the planet says if you want the reward, you have to do things. Christianity, unique in history, Christianity says God has already done everything necessary for your full, complete salvation. Every good thing you do is a reaction to that fact. The fact is already established. God has already done everything so that you can stand in his presence and not be condemned. Here we'll let Paul say it. These are the great gifts of God. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 6, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, the sinful things, the carnal things, the old religious things that you thought used to please God, all those old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, starting with the new covenant the new agreement that God has established in the blood of Christ, whereby he saves people based solely in his grace. Now, all these things, says verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So I've asked this question a few times, but who's the actor there? God's the actor. God is the person actively doing the work, and we are the people who are acted upon. You had your hand up? A lot of folks are looking around for 617. You meant 517. Oh, I did mean 2 Corinthians 517. I just looked backwards in my Bible and just landed on the verse I wanted to be in. And chapter 5. Starting at verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18, now all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's the whole purpose for which Christ was sent to the planet, so that God would be reconciled to the people he has chosen, his elect, his saints. He brought them to himself. He called them to himself. Paul's theology in Romans 8, 28, 29 is very, very clear. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And furthermore, those that he predestined, those are the very people that he called. Furthermore, those people that he called, those are the very people he justified. Furthermore, those people that he justified, those are the people that he past tense glorified. So in God's view of you, you are already predestined, called, justified, and glorified. He accomplished all that by sending his son to the planet. Therefore, you are justified. Therefore, you are redeemed. Therefore, you are reconciled. 
You can't do that. You can't do any of that. Alan, justify yourself. Go. <laughs> can't do it. And worse, justifying yourself before God? Todd, redeem yourself. Go. We'll wait. You can't do it. Reconcile yourself with God. You can't do it. You know what you've done in your relationship with God? Yeah, you've broken the relationship. You've marred the relationship because of the way you simply are by nature. We're sinners by nature. We're born with this corruptible flesh. And therefore, God had to do all of the work, not some of the work. He did not have to start the work of reconciliation and then you come along behind him and complete the work. God had to do all the work and having done all the work through his son Christ, having accomplished redemption and justification, he can say, past tense, you are glorified. You are already in the mind of God secure. Which when I was growing up in the legalistic churches that I grew up in, one thing that I never felt was security. One thing that I never felt was confidence that God was pleased with me. The understanding of the gospel of grace and the understanding of God's complete redemptive work in the new covenant not only took an enormous burden off my shoulders of me constantly trying to please an implacable God, but it also gave me for the first time in my life confidence that I could rest in something I could trust in something I could stand on something I could say the God who made heaven and earth the God who's in charge of everything planets solar systems and atoms and nucleuses the one who's in charge of all of that who cannot be pleased in me is pleased in his son and then he placed me in his son and because he's pleased with his son he's pleased with me because as Paul just said everything became new all that old stuff all the stuff I've done every place I've been all the sin that I've accumulated in this lifetime all of that done away with in Christ here we'll let Paul say it now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now he's going to define for us what the ministry of reconciliation is supposed to be announcing. Verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God, because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the great exchange. All of our sinfulness, all our depravity, all our guilt, all our trespasses placed on him. He paid the penalty, he took the curse, and then his righteousness is placed on us. So that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us, he no longer sees our sin, he sees his son who he loves, 
And as long as we are in the sun, all of those things that I've just listed, justification and predestination and righteousness and redemption and eternal glory and promises with God and glorified for all of those promises are true if you're in Christ. As long as you're in Christ, all of that's true for you. So you don't have to add anything to it. Then Paul turns around and says, now be holy. And every time people get that backwards and say, now be holy so that you can have redemption and justification and all that, they get it wrong. Because Kellen, be holy, go ahead, we'll wait. He gritted his teeth and went, because we simply cannot be good enough to obligate God. We simply can't be good enough that God's going to look on us and go, oh, good job. Well done, you. Compared to me and my son, you are a handful of aces. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, I am satisfied in my son and what my son has done. Therefore, he has given us what Paul calls all these promises. And so Paul starts chapter 7 by saying, therefore, having those promises, which we do, we do have all those promises. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, we have to talk about a couple words there. We talked about it last week. I want to dig a little bit deeper into what Paul's getting at here. Notice, first off, exactly the order that he put these things in. He did not say, clean yourself up so that God will accept you. It's not what he said. He said, God has accepted you, therefore... Work to live a life that completes holiness. The word is, I said it last week, hagiasune. It is the word that means sanctified or cleansed. Now let's talk about how that works for just a moment. Because again, like I just said to Kellen a few minutes ago, okay, go ahead, sanctify yourself, make yourself holy. He can't. No amount of effort we make can do that. So God has sanctified us through the blood of his son. Think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Think about the Old Testament furniture that was in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Let's just pick one piece of furniture, the table of showbread. The table of showbread was just a table. That's all it was. It's a piece of furniture. Sure, it's got gold on it and everything else, but it's still just a piece of furniture. It cannot do righteousness. It cannot do sin. This piece of wood right here, that's a piece of wood. It can't do righteousness. It can't sin. But Moses sacrificed animals on the altar of God and then took the blood of those animals and sprinkled it on the table. And from that point forward, the table of showbread is referred to as a sacred holy object. Why? Not because it did it, not because it impressed God. It can't. It's a table. (laughs) Because the blood of a sacrifice that was sufficient, the blood of that sacrifice made it an object 
that was therefore marked out for all of time as an object belonging to God exclusively and not to be used for any common use. You couldn't bring the family and sit around the table of showbread and have a meal. That's not what that table's for. That table was exclusively for the worship of God by putting bread every Sabbath on the table of showbread, sacrificed to God. And it was a holy object. Okay, so now a blood greater than the blood of bulls and goats has been shed. The blood of Christ has been shed so that God can mark out particular people with the blood of Christ, place them in his son and his son in him, and then he can say that they are sanctified, separated, holy, and only for my exclusive use. No longer can they be used for any common reason. They belong to me. They are holy. This word that I just said, hagiosune, that same word, hagios, is the word that's translated saints. Every time you see saints in the Bible, you're saying holy ones, the holy ones that belong to God. Why do they belong to God? Because he bought them, he purchased them, he redeemed them with a blood greater than the blood of bulls and goats. So having redeemed you, having sanctified you, having separated you to himself, he has already established that you are his eternally sanctified elect called, redeemed, glorified, all of that is established before Paul says, now live like it. Now live like that's who you are. For a very long time, every time preachers would say to me, do better, which was essentially their message. They, they would thunder down from their pulpits and they would say to me, do better, whatever it is you're doing. I don't know everything you're doing, but whatever you're doing, do better. And the one thing I knew for sure was, I can't do any better. And so eventually, all their do-betterness just sounded like guys yelling at me. And don't you hate to go to church and get yelled at? That's all they were doing was yelling at me. Because I was an obvious one. Black leather jacket, long hair, rock and roll boy. I was easy to pick out in a group. Do better. And whenever they would yell at me, do better, I could hear drums in the background going boom, 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 boom. Do the stuff, put on the chains, do the work, do the boom, boom, boom. That was my whole religious life growing up. And one thing I knew about me, because I know me, one thing I knew about me is I can't do better. If I could, I would. But I can't. So all I'm hearing is people telling me, you're not good enough. And God's not happy with you. And you got to shape up or God's never going to be happy with you. And that's what I grew up in until I read, what's that thing? Um, oh, the Bible. Until I read the Bible... Until I understood what the Bible said about God's grace. Now, knowing that God's grace has fully redeemed and justified and glorified me, now it's okay when I read in the Bible, now do better. All of a sudden, that makes sense to me. Because now I want to glorify my king. Now I want to satisfy my God. Now I want to do everything I can do, not so that he'll love me, but because he loves me, yes, 
It's the same way that any relationship works, any relationship. My son doesn't want to rebel against me. Maybe he does. I don't know. But my son does not rebel against me because he loves me. See, right there, unsolicited testimony. And that's why we get along. Now, look, if my entire relationship with him was a constant series of rules whereby he had to satisfy me, otherwise he's in trouble, all he's going to live with is the constant fear that he's going to do something wrong and dad's going to come down on him. And I'm never going to get the performance out of him that I want. All it's going to make him is rebellious. That's what Paul said. He said that once the law said, thou shalt not covet, all he could do was covet. I mean, that's just automatic. As soon as somebody yells at you and says, don't, you want to. When you were kids and your mom said, don't have a cookie before dinner, what's the one thing you wanted? Cookie. cookie before dinner because that's our nature as soon as we hear don't do it shape up do better don't do that don't do this genuflect genuflect blah 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 as soon as we hear that stand up sit down fight 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 we're we're ready at a moment's notice to rebel because we're rebellious people but when god got a hold of me and put his spirit in me when God got a hold of me and placed me in Christ and Christ in me, suddenly the things that the law couldn't make me do, I now do most gladly. I've, I've changed my whole life, and I've done it gladly, and I'm sure that's your testimony too. You're not the man you used to be. You're not the person you used to be. Why? Because you cleaned up and did better? No, because you can't do better. No, you're a different person today because the Spirit of God got a hold of you, acted like a governor on your behavior, and brought you into conformity with God's will for you in your life. Amen. And that's why you now most willingly do the things that please God. And so Paul can say, therefore, having all these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh. Some of your translations will say, from all filthiness of the flesh. Malusmao, I think, is the word, or malusmos. And actually, that particular noun doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It only appears right there. There are three occasions where you can see the verb, which is how we know what the word means. Because the verb has to do with staining or defiling or polluting a garment. And so it's clear that what Paul is saying is having been cleansed by Jesus, having been redeemed by Jesus, having been washed by the Holy Spirit, as you go through this life, reckon yourself to be a different kind of people and don't get polluted with the things of this world. Don't let the things of this world stain you. Have you ever been watching TV? I'm going to speak for myself here. I have a free HBO month right now that AT&T for some reason gave me. Here, you get a month of HBO. Okay, I'll take a month of HBO. Fine. I'm flipping around HBO. Don't go flipping around HBO. Just trust me on this one. I'm flipping around HBO, and there's stuff showing up that scarred my psyche. 
there's stuff showing up that I didn't really want to see and didn't want to think about. And, oh, those are two men, isn't Oh, no, click. You know, stuff that, that you shouldn't see. Okay, well, that's a good example of being polluted by this world. That as we walk through this world, we're not to stain ourselves. We're not to pollute ourselves with the unclean things, the defilements of the flesh and of the spirit. Completing, which is what that word perfecting means. In the Greek, it means to complete the holiness of God that has been placed already in us. So we have been cleaned up. We have been made righteous. We've been set apart for God's exclusive use. All of that is true. Now make sure as you walk through this life that you don't defile that. Now, having said that, I know what most of you are thinking at this moment, but Jim, didn't Christ die for all our sins and all our pollutions and all our iniquities? Yes, yes, he did. Knowing that Christ has done all that for you, knowing that God has done all that for you, that he has sacrificed his son for you, knowing all that, walk in a way where you aren't picking up the pollutions of this world that get into your flesh and get into your spirit, and in that way, you are completing the hagiosune, the separating that God has called you to. And I don't have a problem with that. People call me every so often and write to me and say, but isn't that kind of call to holiness, isn't that kind of opposed to grace? Because you're the grace guy, Jim. That's what they type. You're the grace guy, Jim. And so it's grace, 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 right? And now you sound rather legalistic. Now you're talking about holiness and sanctification and walking after the Spirit of God. Except that that's exactly how Paul does it. He lays out all that theology of grace, and then he turns around and says, now walk like it. Now act like it. And if we're not saying that, then we're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Look up, Tom. Don't look up Tom. Look up. He's <laughs> right there. Look up Tom, if you would. Tom, look up First Peter. Anybody who wants to turn there, too. This is a real interesting passage. First Peter 1, right at the beginning of First Peter, verses 13 to 15. Because Peter, in that passage, is going to combine the grace of God with holiness. It's not only Paul who keeps advancing this theology. It's the theology that permeates the New Testament. Yes, it's grace. It's all of grace. In fact, Peter's going to say, fix your hope completely on grace. Fix your hope utterly on grace. So it's grace, 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 grace. And then he's going to say, and walk holy. So Tom will read that for us, starting at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it's written, verse 16, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what did Peter just do? He said, yeah, it's grace. It's grace, it's grace. Have your mind completely convinced 
and completely concentrating, fixing your hope on the fact that it's all grace. And then in reaction to the fact that you know that it's all grace, walk holy. So again, I think I just have to keep emphasizing, if you get that backwards, you'll make a terrible mess of Christianity. Because you'll end up preaching a genuinely legalistic message that says, walk holy to get grace. But the Bible says over and over again, you've received grace, now walk holy. So now Paul's going to go back to his emotional plea. He is just pouring out his heart to the Corinthians here. In the previous chapter, he has listed all the things that he has suffered for their sake. And so now he's going to go back to this emotional plea. Now, in our introduction to 2 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that there appears to be a letter that happens sometime between 1 and 2 Corinthians. There apparently is a letter that we don't have a copy of, and that letter made the Corinthians really upset. It really made them sad. It really made them sorrowful. So now Paul's going to address that, and he's going to address it in a very emotional way. Paul is very good at high theology, very good at sound doctrine, very good at talking about God's predestinary will and God being in charge of everything since before the foundation of the world. He's very good at high doctrine, but he never loses the emotional base and the love and compassion that he has for the people. Doctrine, dry doctrine, doctrine that only feeds your head but doesn't touch your heart isn't going to do you a lot of good. It might work in academic ivory towers, but when you're dealing with human beings, especially if you're dealing with emotional, broken human beings, which is how we're described as broken pottery, we're described as crack pots in the Bible. And knowing that about us, we have to be able to approach people not just with sound doctrine, but we have to be able to approach them where they live and talk to, speak to, communicate with them from the heart. And so that's what Paul's about to do. And in the process, he's going to say, I'm sorry that I made you sorrowful. And then he's going to think about it again and go, but I'm not that sorry because you were sorrowful enough that you repented. And then he's going to say the way the world repents counts for nothing. In fact, he says worldly repentance results in death. But he says godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of again leads to a godly repentance that leads to eternal life. So he's going to say, I, I wrote you a letter. I told you to clean up your act. I told you what was going on in your church, and I was pretty hard on you. And it made you sorrowful. And I apologize that I made you sorrowful, but the fact that you were sorrowful led you to genuinely repent, and that makes me happy. So that's the balance of this chapter. Let's start reading. Make room for us in your hearts. We looked at that last week because Paul said, I'm pouring out my heart to you. I'm opened up completely to you. So now also make room for us in your heart. We wronged no one. 
We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Paul's going to speak later in this book about the fact that they didn't even support him financially. He worked with his own hands. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. And he gave them the gospel completely freely. And he says, you didn't fall behind any of the other churches except in this one thing. I was no burden to you. And then he says, forgive me this wrong. So make room for us because we didn't wrong anybody. We corrupted nobody. We took advantage of nobody. I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul is really expressing the amount of affection that he has for these people. He knows that there's persecution within the church. Persecution from the Jews, and remember that the church at Corinth is largely Jewish. There's persecution from the Romans. There's persecution from the Gentiles. There's persecution on every side. To be a Christian in the first century and to join Paul in this theology was basically a death sentence. We've kind of lost that sense because we get to sit in air-conditioned rooms with carpet under our feet and and we're going to stay today and eat together and celebrate. We have a public building and we say we're Christians. If you want to find the Christians, they're here. They're right in this building. If you want to persecute them or jail them, here they are. Come get them. But we are fortunate in that we don't have that kind of persecution happening, so we forget the context of Paul's writing. He's saying, I'm with you so much, I'm here to live and die with you. And he means die. And he did die. I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy even in all our afflictions, the previous chapter, he listed those afflictions. That he was afflicted constantly for this ministry, but he said, even in that, I have joy. Because I know from Titus, he's about to mention Titus, I know from Titus that you actually are listening to me. You're paying attention. You're, you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of God. And that brings me joy, even as I'm afflicted. So he's going to talk about his time in Macedonia. He went to Macedonia originally to meet Titus there. And then when he got there, as you might remember, he couldn't find Titus anywhere, which just added to his sorrow. But then Titus shows up, starting at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, But God, two of my favorite words in the Bible, by the way, that shows up very frequently, but God, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, not only by his company, not only having him around me, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul is in Macedonia, Titus comes to him, tells him, I've been in Corinth, and it turns out those people really love you. Those people really do 
care about you and have a zeal for you. And so Paul says, in the midst of all my afflictions, my beatings, my jailings, my shipwrecks, my hungers, in the midst of all that, I heard that you're okay, and that brought me tremendous comfort. And that you care about me, and that made me rejoice all the more. Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I wish we had a copy of that letter. I'd love to know what Paul said to them that so upset them, that caused them so much sorrow that Paul would take the time to write about it again and realize that he had created a distance between himself and them, that he had created a friction between them. And now he's writing and saying, you know, I regretted that for a while. I sent you a letter that even made me so sorrowful when I heard that you were sorrowful about it. I regretted even sending that letter. But then I found out the result of that letter, and now I'm not so regretful. (laughs) For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Okay, let's talk about repentance, because sometimes people have a tendency to hyper-spiritualize words like that. I just said a few minutes ago, God has given you everything necessary for your full, complete salvation. God has gifted you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, when he takes up residence in somebody, does three very important things. It happens to everybody. Everybody that God places his spirit in, three things are true of them. Number one, they realize they're sinners. It's the first thing they come to. The first thing they recognize is, I'm actually not good before God. I thought that maybe heaven was like a great scale and we would put my good works on one side and my bad works on the other and as long as my good slightly outweighed the bad, I could slip in on a technicality. So I must be pretty okay with God. No, the Bible says there's none, none that stir up himself to seek God. None, that's Isaiah. Isaiah says, and then Paul repeats it, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. So don't pretend you're the one. And then Paul goes on, just like Isaiah does, to list all the depravity of human beings. So the first thing that the Spirit of God will do is break your ego, break your pride, and make you come to the realization that you're just no good. First. Second thing the Spirit of God does for every Christian across the board is produce repentance. Here's what repentance means. The word means to turn 180 degrees from this to this. That's all the word means. The word means to turn from what you were to what you're going to be. The word means to turn from your fleshly way of life to the godly way of life. The word means to turn And the power of God and the spirit of God will turn you. Think about it. If you're talking about the power of the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, if he gets a hold of you, you don't think he can change you? 
I'm always amazed by the egocentric rebels in the world who think, I can resist God. No, you can't. Because he's God. And you're you. And in the Bible, you're called a maggot. Okay, now, even I, walking down the street, seeing an ant walking one direction, I can turn that ant. I can redirect that ant. I can make the ant go a different way if I want to. I have that power. I feel good about me. Me and ants, I got it down. That's God in us. God who has the ability to cast you into outer darkness and you don't get to argue about it. God who has the ability to save you for himself, for his own glory, for his own good pleasure, and you can't do anything about it. That God can change you and redirect you and re-steer you as easily as I can change the direction of bugs. Because he's God. And if your estimation of God is biblical, you recognize that he's completely and utterly sovereign. And because he's completely and utterly sovereign and you belong to him, it's up to him to decide how you're going to live out the rest of your life. You're either going to live out the rest of your life in ego, in pride, in hubris, doing your own thing, going your own way, and you're going to end up judged. Or he's going to call you, he's going to redeem you, and he's going to change you. And that's the essence of what repentance is. The third thing that he does for all Christians is he gives you the gift of faith. Because let's be honest, knowing what we know from the Bible about human beings naturally, if you could resist God, you would. You're not about to agree with God. You're you're going to say, God, what, make me a Christian? No. That's not happening. No, we're not doing that. I like my life. I like my parties. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. I'm still in that season. I still want my sin. I'm still not going to have God ruling over me. I will not have this man to rule over me. The Bible again says that. God is going to grant you the faith to believe that he has already done for you everything necessary to secure your salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's see, what do we read in, the, in Hebrews 12? Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of faith. What do we read in Philippians? It's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. What do we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So the biblical testimony is faith is a gift that God gives to his chosen people so that his chosen people will end up glorifying his son, which is God's ultimate plan. So three things God's going to do for absolutely every Christian. He's going to convince you of your sinfulness and your need for a savior He's going to cause you to repent of what you were to what you're becoming. And he's going to grant you the faith to believe in the Savior that he has provided for you. Do you get that? Okay, so now having done all that, Paul could say that one of the methods that God uses to bring people to repentance is godly sorrow. And he's going to compare that to worldly sorrow. You know what worldly sorrow is, right? 
I shouldn't name names. I can think of so many examples right now. I have sinned. I can, I can think of, oh, you figured that one out on your own, didn't you? Yeah, make your own joke. Yeah, worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that you saw Bernie Madoff do, you know, that, oh, I got to go to jail. I'm so sorry. Because the world is not sorry for what they've done till they get caught. They don't suddenly become convicted, you know, oh, I've ripped all these people off and I'm living like a billionaire, but I feel pretty good about it. It's not until they get caught that the world is going to be sorrowful, that the world is going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. That's worldly sorrow. And Paul says that leads to death because all that is at the bottom line is self-justification. In the end, all that is is saying, well, yes, I hurt a bunch of people. I ripped a bunch of people off. I lived completely for me and my ego, but I'm sorry. Doesn't that make it okay again? I'm so tired of politicians doing that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Sure, I said it. I'm sorry. That's worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow is when God breaks you. When God brings you to an end of yourself, when God convinces you that the way you're living and the things you're doing and the ways that you're thinking and the ways you're treating other people and the things that you cherish in this world have all got to change and you recognize that you are in fact not just a sinner before God but a wretched, depraved sinner before God and you cry out to God, forgive me. Forgive me for being how I am. The very fact that we are sinful, depraved people has to be changed, has to be redeemed, has to be repented of, has to be made, like Paul said, made new. All things made new. So godly sorrow leads to godly repentance. Here we'll let Paul say it. He'll say it in a lot fewer words than I used, but... For though I caused you sorrow, this is verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Godly sorrow brought about by God. Has anybody here ever just fallen down on your face before God? Am I the only one with my hand up? I'm the only saved person in this room apparently. Have you ever just come to an end of yourself and recognized your sinfulness before God and your desire to glorify that God and you fall down on your face in front? That's God's work. That's God doing that. That's not you in your flesh. You didn't come to the conclusion that you ought to go repent before God. God drove you to sorrow because he was bringing you along in the things of Christ conforming you to the image of his son and he brought you to that point of sorrow on purpose 
because it brings about godly repentance. As in everything in the Christian life, God gets the credit for all of it. God gets credit for the sorrow. God gets credit for the repentance. God gets credit for the faith. God gets credit for the redemption. God gets credit for the atoning work of Christ. That was his idea. That was his accomplishment. God gets credit for calling you to himself and then glorifying you eternally so that you can stand in his glorious presence. God gets all of the credit. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer any loss in anything through us. What Paul's saying there is, my writing to you and my causing you sorrow is simply the catalyst that God used to bring you to repentance. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Uh, I think the King James says repentance not to be repented of. A repentance before God that is a godly repentance that you don't have to change from. You don't start here and then repent and go here and then repent again and go, well, now I'm back to here. I'm doing another 180 degrees. Now I've done 360. That's math, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> you don't turn back to your old ways. Once you've repented from yourself and turned to God, there's nothing to go back to. All things are made new. You're moving forward in God. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. This is all part of the process that God utilizes to bring you to the salvific work. It's all part and parcel of the salvation experience. Whether it's faith, whether it's repentance, whether it's sorrow, whether it's joy, whether it's confidence, these are all the things that God gives us by his Holy Spirit. Leading to salvation, but look at the end of verse 10 and we're done for the morning. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The ministry of death! <laughs> I, I had to do that. Yeah. If you act like the world, if you're sorrowful in the world, if you're only sorry because you got caught by the world, then God's going to judge that. God knows. God knows if you're faking. God knows if you're pretending. But the godly sorrow leads to godly repentance, and that's one of the tools that God uses. Look, sometimes people write to me or call me, and they say, it's awful. You should see my life right now. It's awful. It's bad. I am so broken up. I am so hurt. I am so sorrowful. I have cried so many tears. I am really at an end of myself. I'm, I'm really at the bottom of this pit that I'm in. And when they tell me that, there's a part of me in the back of my head that wants to go, good. Because you're right where God wants you. You're right where God is going to utilize his power to bring you back up. And he's not going to bring you back up till you're at the bottom of yourself. And then you're going to recognize who it is that brought you back up. 
then you're going to glorify the one that brought you back up. Then you're going to recognize that your sustenance and your day-to-day -day ability to get up and walk and think and talk and know your own name is all God. But you're not going to know that till you get over your ego and your hubris and your sense of self-sufficiency. And God will break you of that self-sufficiency and bring about godly sorrow to bring about godly repentance, which leads to salvation. You get that? that great writing? I still want to know what the, the other letter said. I'm still curious. But for whatever reason, God decided we don't need that letter, which apparently was a pretty harsh letter, a pretty emotional letter, a pretty sorrowful letter. So what we have here is Paul's reaction to that letter, which I think has produced a much grander theology. Make sense? Makes sense. It was just for them. Nobody else could have received Apparently that letter was just for them. Yeah. Apparently it wasn't meant to wouldn't be part of the canon. Wouldn't apply. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So, questions? This is what I really like. God totally destroys the free will argument. Doesn't he just? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> As soon as we began with the gifts that God was in Christ reconciling us to himself, your free will thing is done, especially because you're not the actor. God's the complete actor, and God is choosing as he wills. So, yes. Anything else? That was not a question, by the way. That was a definitive statement, and I liked it. Yes, sir? Pointing to me? Or I am pointing to you. I didn't know someone behind me. You're the tallest person back there. Okay, so uh, my girls and I, we, we watched an interesting movie uh, Friday night. They're like, let's watch a movie, okay? And I'm like, I'm looking for a, a decent flick that would be okay. And tooling around, I think it was Amazon. And so this faith-based movie, right? Looked up on another website, said it's pretty good. And right away, we, we thought it was pretty lame. And I'm like, this is, this is a fishy movie. This is a fishy movie. It says, based upon the, tes the testimony of Paul. It's kind of a modern adaption, right? And then when the, one of the kids in the movie, they come out of their Sunday school. The, the mother says, what did you learn today? And she said, well, we're just learning about how we need to make penance and make up for our sin." Mm. I'm like, what is this movie? Like <laughs> in the name, while it's playing, it's a Mormon-based movie. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And uh, just commenting sort of in response to what you said earlier, that man in his own attempts, it's always legalistic. Always. It's always man will justify. Jesus said, you are they who justify yourselves to men. Any man who take the words of Jesus apart from God's grace and justify ourselves with it. Yeah. It's just inherent in us, isn't it? We just want to do something. Right. I think it's because psychologically we have this sense that if I do something, then when I do something wrong, I can always point at the good thing I did. Right. I can always go, yeah, but I got that. I did that. And it's very hard to let go of all of your little bits of self-confidence right. and just trust completely, throw yourself out into eternity, trusting that Christ has got you. That's hard. We can't 
we believe that God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are that active with us. He's way up there. Yeah, it's hard to believe that. Yeah. They don't believe how active God And that is why God had to grant you the gift of faith. That's right. Because it is inherently unbelievable. Because we're living in a whole world of people who can't believe it. Always take comfort in, of those you have given me, I have lost. I've lost nothing. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.